0: I'm now married to my wonderful wife, Julia, and we have these four lovely daughters. So I'm now 45 years into my journey through life. And probably all of us would agree that during the course of a typical life, there usually comes a moment. Now, this moment could only last for five minutes, but at least for those five minutes, we all ask this question. Am I alive for a reason? I can see, think, feel, I can have fun, but is there any purpose to life? For at least those five minutes, we ask, why am I here? I mean, why is anything here? How come there's something rather than nothing? Science has shown us that the universe began to exist. Why did the universe begin to exist? Why is there a universe with me living in it? Why is there a planet Earth with me living on it? You know, I showed you a few photos from my life. Well, you could take your phone right now and show me a few photos from yours, but once we've added them together, does it mean anything? Do our lives count for anything in the greater scheme of things? The Bible's answer is yes. Yes, because you're supposed to be here. You are worth something. You're not an accident. There really is a loving God who always planned that one day you would exist. And this loving God has made you deliberately, on purpose, for a reason, in the hope of having the most wonderful love relationship with you, a relationship that's not just good for this life, but which goes on into the next, into a place where every day is better than the one before, a place where you'll never be bored, you'll be filled and thrilled to the max. Now that's quite a claim. but. Can it be trusted? Personally, I had my doubts. I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. I wasn't looking for God. I didn't want to believe a lot of nonsense. I did a history degree at university, and then I became a reporter on the Times newspaper in London. And at the Times, I was trained. be cynical. I was trained to doubt and disbelieve everything and everyone. So when I first came across a church like this, it seemed to me that the whole of Christianity either stood or fell on the New Testament's claim that Jesus really was the unique Son of God who rose from the dead. So are there any good reasons why a skeptical person would come to trust the Bible? Well, let's start by asking, is what the New Testament says about Jesus supported by evidence from outside the Bible? Were there any non-Christians in ancient history who can tell us anything about Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. There is a first-century Jewish historian called Josephus who makes two references to Jesus, and these references are preserved, unaltered, and unchanged in an Arabic version. There is the main Roman historian of this period, Tacitus. There's a man called Pliny the Younger who was the Roman governor of Bithynia in northwest Turkey. There is a satirist called Lucian of Samosata And then there's another source called the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. Now, all of these are non-Christian, in fact, anti-Christian sources which give us information about the historical Jesus. Now, there are several other non-Christian sources. But just for the sake of time, pulling the five that I mentioned together, here's our question. What would we know about Jesus if we totally ignored the Bible. What would we know from the ancient world about Jesus if we totally ignored the Bible? Well, firstly, Josephus and Lucian say that Jesus was regarded as wise. Second, Pliny, the Talmud, and Lucian imply that he was a powerful and honored teacher. Third, the Talmud indicates that he performed miraculous feats but was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fourth, Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, and Lucian all mention that Jesus was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus say this happened under Pontius Pilate. The Talmud says it was on the eve of the Passover, which is exactly as the New Testament describes. Fifthly, Josephus has reports of Jesus' resurrection. Sixthly, he says that Jesus' followers believed that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. And finally, both Pliny and Lucian indicate that Christians worship Jesus as God. So, as it happens, there is unbiased support for the Bible's version of events from early non-Christian, even anti-Christian sources. But how in the world could these ancient non-Christian documents lead me into a relationship with God? Well, by way of comparison, Here is the hilarious true story of how I began a relationship with Julia, who is now my wife, 18 years ago. Now, I have to tell you, folks, I really liked Julia. But I was absolutely convinced that she would not like me for one very good reason. I thought that she was too good-looking for me. Thank you for that R. This was a fact that was confirmed to me by all of my friends. (laughs) But once, when there was a large group of people in the room, I was sitting next to Julia on a sofa and I I realized that her knee was touching mine. (laughs) But I dismiss this as purely accidental knee contact, the sort of accidental knee contact that presumably can happen when a girl finds her sitting next to some bloke who she doesn't fancy at all. So I thought, well, any second now, Julia will realize that her knee is touching mine, and she will withdraw her knee. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you that five seconds passed. Yeah and no such knee withdrawal took place. But at the time, I thought, well, maybe the sofa is so small that she's been squashed, forced into sustained knee contact against her will. But no, I looked around, her sofa was plenty big enough. So I thought, well, maybe she's got one of those medical conditions, you know, where you can't feel things. Maybe she's had a nerve cut in her right knee. Maybe she has paralysis of the right knee, but no. Julia showed none of the telltale signs of right knee paralysis. <laughs> so I realized that if her knee was still touching mine in 10 seconds' time, I would take that as official confirmation that she was interested in me. 10 seconds passed, her knee was still touching mine, and I realized that I had received a signal. Even though I am a bloke, I was able to work this out. Now here, I shall skip a whole year of the story just to speed things up a bit. So a whole year later, I was ready to ask Julia to marry me. Okay? This is a whole year later. And so it was that one night I hid in the bushes planning my first burglary. My mission was to break into Julia's parents' house, steal her passport, because I thought to myself, if I can whisk her away to Paris and propose in Paris, then when I ask her, she might say yes in a kind of disorientated daze, <laughs> brought on by the excitement of the Eurostar. <laughs> so I broke into her parents' house, I stole her passport, and in Paris, in a restaurant called Le Table d'hôte du Palais Royal, which set me back a bit, um, I got down on one knee, I said, will you marry me? And she said yes. Thank you very much. Now, as I'm kneeling there in the restaurant in Paris holding this ring, the obvious question is will you marry me? But for many of us when we come to the New Testament, the obvious question is how do you know it's true? Isn't the New Testament the product of exaggerated stories and Chinese whispers? Maybe Jesus' followers got a bit carried away in that time after the alleged resurrection of Jesus, but before the New Testament documents ever did get written down. I mean, after all, wasn't it hundreds of years later that the stories about Jesus eventually did get written down? Answer, well, Jesus died in around 33 AD, and we have in a document known as 1 Corinthians, an account of the resurrection appearances of Jesus that we can date back to within a few months of the actual event. Writing in 55 AD, the author, the apostle Paul writes, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, And then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now this passage presents several problems for anyone suggesting that the resurrection appearances are more legendary than they are historical. First of all, writing 22 years after the resurrection, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they can test whether the resurrection has any basis in fact or not, because the majority of the 500 or so witnesses are still alive and willing to be interviewed. And then, for a number of technical reasons to do with the actual Greek and Aramaic words in this passage, This passage is thought to contain a much earlier creedal statement. It is likely that Paul picked up this list of resurrection appearances shortly after his own conversion in Damascus or when he takes a trip to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the early Christian church, a man called Peter and another man called James. And this is a trip sometime around 35 AD. He talks about this trip in his letter to the Galatians, chapter one, verses 18 to 19. Now, here is the key point. It turns out there is a wide agreement amongst scholars of all sorts of different persuasions that this list of resurrection appearances was already well established when Paul picked it up in 35 AD. This list was well established in 35 AD. It not only existed in 35 AD, but it had been around for a while when Paul collected it in 35 AD. This shows that the resurrection appearances are as old as Christianity itself. This shows that the resurrection appearances are not a much later legendary development. So we have a very early report of Jesus' resurrection. But if you're looking for the first full-length biography of Jesus, then conservative scholars argue that the earliest Gospel, Mark, was completed in around 60 AD with Luke very shortly afterwards. Now, the standard dating of the Gospels in so-called liberal circles would be Mark in the 70s, Matthew and Luke in the 80s, with John in the 90s. Those dates, if you like, would be at one end of the spectrum but conservative scholars have recently presented powerful reasons for thinking that the earliest gospel mark was written sometime around 60 AD so here's the math if Jesus died in 33 AD yeah, then our sum will be 60 minus 33 equals 27 we're looking at a time gap of 27 years isn't Twenty-seven years, a very long time gap. Well, not if it's an eyewitness account. When I was a journalist working for national newspapers in central London, we were always looking for politicians to publish their diaries. And sometimes a politician would publish his or her diaries fully 30 years after they left power, but when they did, we would always regard their first-hand account of what really happened as more reliable than the newspaper reports that came out at the time. Now, in terms of being an eyewitness, uh, a funny thing happened to me in London where we live on the Tube. We live in West London, and I'm on the district line, as I often am. The train stops at Earls Court. You may possibly know the driver train is over at Earls Court. There's this slightly odd two-minute delay. The doors are open. The carriage is quite full. People are walking up and down on the platform. And I can see that there is a woman standing on the platform, looking into the train, and she is staring at me in a kind of a manic, piercing kind of way. And after about two minutes of manic staring, this woman shouts at me quite loudly. She shouts, Lars! Lars! I can't believe it's you! It's me, Jennifer! I can't believe I've seen you again after all this time! How are you, Lars? And I look around the carriage, and everyone is looking at me, and so I stand up, and I say, hi, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be completely honest and say that right now, I don't immediately remember you, uh, sorry, what's your name, Jennifer, but I'm sure as we carry on talking any minute now, it'll all come flooding back, and she said, what, what, you don't remember me, Lars? You don't remember me, Lars, after all we've gone through? And I said, well, I'm sure that any minute now I I will remember. I will remember. She said, oh, no, she said it's too late now. She said, I'm offended. I'm offended. And I said, well, it might be that the reason why I don't immediately recognize you is because my name is not Lars. (laughs) She looked me up and down. And she said, oh, she said, I'm so embarrassed and her friend put her arm around her and they walked off up the platform at which point everyone in the carriage burst out laughing. (laughs) Now I'm telling you that story as an eyewitness but of course there were lots of other eyewitnesses as well, there were about, I don't know, 15, 20 other people. Now what if all of us in the carriage had all written down what happened and then we all collected our eyewitness reports and if we handed them to Phil, here in the front row, what Phil would be getting is a collection of different eyewitness accounts. Folks, the important thing is that much of the New Testament is the testimony of eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were two of Jesus' twelve disciples. Peter's account is written by Mark, his traveling companion. And Mark himself is an actor in the New Testament story. We can see Mark in the narrative. Meanwhile, Luke traveled with Paul, and Paul was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. But many people are totally unaware of any of this. Many people think that New Testament is the product of Chinese whispers. Professor A. N. Sherwin-White of St. John's College, Oxford University studied this question as a Roman historian. And he concluded that it takes two full or complete generations for the core truth of historical events to become corrupted by legendary embellishments. According to Dr. Sherwin-White, the Gospels as a result are written too early for accurate historical information about the real Jesus to have become corrupted. The Gospels are written too early, before Chinese whispers could ever have become a factor. But hang on. I mean, this just prompts a further question, don't you think? Look, even if I did accept that the eyewitnesses didn't exaggerate when they wrote down the New Testament documents, how do we know that we've got in our hands today an accurate copy of what they originally wrote. I mean, this is only a copy. The originals have been lost. So for all we know, during the copying process, all sorts of errors could have crept in. What we're asking is, how can we be sure that the New Testament is free from mistakes, especially as the original parchments have disintegrated? The answer is that we can be sure through the science of textual criticism. We can be absolutely sure that we have today an accurate copy of the originals, and here is why. This table gives us a chance to compare the New Testament to other ancient books which today are considered trustworthy. Now, folks, we don't have the originals of any of the six works listed here on the screen. But before they disappeared, the originals were copied. So what historians do is they look at the time gap between when the original was written, so for example, for Tacitus, the original was written in 100 AD, and the earliest surviving copy. Well, the oldest surviving copy of Tacitus was created in 1100 AD. That is a time gap of 1,000 years. The shorter the time gap between the original document and the earliest surviving copy, the more sure historians can be That we've got an accurate copy of the original. As you can see, the New Testament does rather well by comparison. Its various books were written between 49 and 95 AD. The earliest bit of the New Testament anywhere in the world is in Manchester. It's a part of John's Gospel. It's dated at the latest 130 AD, it's in the John Rylands Library in Manchester. Nobody disputes that date. 130 AD is only 40 years after John first wrote his Gospel. Now to you and me, 40 years is a long time. But it's like a photocopy when compared to the time gap for some of these others, which is anything up to 1,000 years. So the New Testament does really well by comparison. And that, if you like, is the first leg of the argument for the reliable transmission of the original scriptures. The second leg of the argument is all to do with the vast number of identical surviving copies. And to explain the second leg of the argument, I would now like to attempt a humorous illustration. Imagine that you have a relative called Aunt Sally. Aunt Sally, Has developed a recipe for making chocolate brownies that actually make the people who eat her brownies look younger. Yeah. Aunt Sally has discovered the secret of perpetual youth. As you can imagine, Aunt Sally's recipe for her brownies is a closely guarded secret. Aunt Sally doesn't have a photocopier, Aunt Sally has no computer in her house. Aunt Sally writes down her recipe for the chocolate brownies in her own handwriting and she gives one copy, one handwritten copy of this recipe to each of her three friends. So there are a total of four copies of her recipe in existence. All is going well until one fateful day, Aunt Sally's dog eats her recipe. Aunt Sally is beside herself with worry. In a panic, she visits her three best friends who each tell her that they too have suffered similar mishaps. One says that she lost her copy of the recipe during a house move two years ago. A second says that inexplicably she threw the recipe away. A third says that she lost her copy of the recipe in a house fire two years ago. Aunt Sally breaks down in tears. She slumps to the floor. Every original copy of her recipe has been lost. She pleads with her friends, is there anything you can do to help me? At this moment, each of her three friends make a dramatic confession. They say, Sally, we never knew how to tell you this. But the truth is that before our recipes were lost, each of us made 10 copies of your recipe, and we gave one of them to each of our 10 best friends. Rather than being angry, Sally punches the air. She jumps for joy. She hugs her friends in delight, rejoicing in the news that 30 copies of her recipe still exist. And so comes the great day when Sally summons these 30 people to her home, and each arrives holding their recipe for chocolate brownies, wherein is contained the secret of perpetual youth. Sally lays the 30 copies down on her living room floor, and she studies them carefully on her hands and knees, and Sally discovers that 27 of the 30 recipes are identical. Word for word, identical. But documents 14 and 17 have phrases within them that none of the others have. And the phrases are not identical. Document 14 has the command, then let the brownies stand to call, whereas document 17 just has the words, let stand. And document 21 contains a comma and the word and that none of the other 29 documents have. Now, here is the crucial question. Do you think that Aunt Sally can accurately reconstruct the original text of the recipe from the 30 surviving copies? Yes. Yes, Yes, she can. Because 27 of the 30 are identical, word for word, identical. The textual variants in documents 14, 17, and 21 are obviously later insertions that weren't there in the original. And that, ladies and gentlemen, in a very simplified form, is the case for the New Testament. Looking at the extreme right hand column that we have here, the greater the number of identical surviving copies we have, the more certain we can be that we have got an accurate copy of the original. For the New Testament, we have a total of 5,800 Greek manuscripts. These are found in locations all over the early world, And the similarity between them and, for that matter, the similarity between them and the 10,000 Latin manuscripts and a further 8,000 in Ethiopic, Slavic, and Armenian means that when you put all of these many copies together, we can reconstruct the text of the original New Testament from all the copies. So if you have stacks of ancient copies found all over the world, and you put them all next to each other, and you find they are all essentially saying the same thing, if all the copies are saying the same thing, there cannot have been exaggeration going on, because if there was exaggeration going on, they'd all be saying different things. If all the copies are saying the same thing, then whoever's been doing the copying must have been copying very accurately, with so many identical copies. From so many places, all saying the same thing, we can be certain that the New Testament that we have in our hands today is an accurate record of what was originally written. Summing up, the late Sir Frederick Kenyon, an expert on Greek papyri, also a former director of the British Museum, concluded that the last doubt has now been removed. We know that we've got what the New Testament authors originally wrote. So it seems that there wasn't corruption of original historical information about Jesus before the New Testament documents got written down, nor has there been corruption as those documents were subsequently copied. Okay, somebody says, Adrian, thanks for your talk, but look, at the end of the day, the Bible says that miracles have happened, and I think miracles are nonsense. Okay, fair enough. Let's take the most spectacular and the most important miracle in the whole Bible, the resurrection of Christ, which, if it did happen, would demonstrate Jesus' divinity, his supremacy, and his authority. Dr. Gary Habermas has made a detailed study of every book and every article that credentialed scholars have published on the subject of the resurrection since 1975. And he and his colleague, Dr. Michael Lycona, then selected only those facts that the vast majority of scholars, including skeptical ones, accept as historical fact. They chose to work only with those facts that the overwhelming majority of academics, both Christian and non-Christian, consider to be reliable. So here are four of those minimal facts, facts that are accepted even by scholars who oppose the resurrection. Number one, that Jesus was crucified and died as a result. Number two, that Jesus' tomb was empty. Number three, that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he appeared to them. And fourthly, the conversion of the anti Christian persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Now, if you were on a jury at a trial at the Old Bailey right now, and if the judge had sent you out to consider your verdict, at this moment, you would be looking for a verdict that best fits all the facts. You'd be looking for a verdict that doesn't strain or minimize the known facts. You would be looking for a verdict that best fits the facts that aren't in dispute. Folks, the reason why I became... Convinced that Jesus must have risen from the dead is because the resurrection explanation outdistances all the competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection is the only explanatory theory that can accommodate all the known facts. And any alternative explanatory theory also has to account for the explosive growth of Christianity. Because we know that Christianity burst into life with thousands of Jews in Jerusalem suddenly worshipping a carpenter. But no historian would ever have predicted this because first century Jews were strict monotheists. The last thing they wanted to do was worship a man. They thought worshipping a human being was idolatry. It was an appalling idea. So why did thousands of them suddenly commit idolatry and start worshipping a carpenter as God? Can I ask you, what would it take you to do something tomorrow that today you think that thing is disgusting and appalling and horrific? Well, that is what worshipping a man was to a first century Jew. Yet thousands of Jews suddenly did it. You see, folks, strictly speaking, Christianity should not exist. It should have been instantly that the so-called resurrection appearances of Jesus, they should have been instantly disproved by both the Jews and the Romans who had the dead body of Jesus in a sealed tomb guarded by soldiers. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth had been such a blasphemous threat to the Jews and such a political threat to the Romans that the two groups had conspired together to get Jesus killed. The whole point of crucifying him was to snuff out Jesus and his embryonic movement. The last thing they wanted was Jesus' disciples persuading people that Jesus was alive. Folks, if they'd had the body, then as the first Christians toured Jerusalem, punching the air, saying, Christ is risen, Jesus is alive, then the Jews or the Romans, if they had his dead body, would have put it on a cart and wheeled Jesus' dead body behind the Christians, saying, no, 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 he's not alive. Look, he's dead. Come and see for yourselves. Jesus was, after all, a celebrity. Finally, imagine that you lived on the moon and you look down on the Mediterranean world in 33 AD, and you had to bet your life on either the message of 12 fishermen who worship a crucified carpenter taking over the entire Roman Empire within the space of 300 years, or you can bet on the might of the Roman Empire crushing the message of the fishermen within a generation. Now, who would your money be on? You bet on the Romans. And yet today we name our children Peter, Andrew, and James, and we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. <laughs> Let me speak very personally. Let me speak very personally as I close I don't know about you, but it seemed reasonable to me that if God exists and he made the universe, that at some point this God would want to reveal himself or make himself known to people. All the Bible is saying is that that is what was happening through Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says that you can have eternal life. Jesus says that you can know God personally. The Bible says that God so loved you that he gave his one and only son so that if you believe in him, if you trust in Christ... You won't perish. No, you will have eternal life. What an offer. And so you can now follow the evidence wherever it leads you. And you can have exactly the sort of peace and joy and security that Jesus promised. And you won't have to commit intellectual suicide to get it. For me, folks, finding out that there really is a loving God, that you can know him personally, you can have Christ in you, that has been the most thrilling discovery of my life. Thank you for listening to me. God bless you. I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay, just before we're finished, I'm going to invite the musician, one or two of the musicians to come back. I'd like to ask you whether you could do us a favor. Folks, under your chair there's a pen and there is a card which we'd love everybody at this morning's meeting to fill in and write something on this card. Even if you come to this church every Sunday, even if you've been coming for years, we're going to ask you to give us feedback on this event. I'm sure you can appreciate this morning has been a bit different from a typical Sunday. We'd love to have your comments, what you thought of this morning, what we could have done better, what you liked, what you didn't like. And if everybody writes something, we'd really appreciate it. Folks, the guy who developed the Alpha course is a 59-year-old vicar in the Church of England. And he was a bit surprised to be interviewed by Cosmopolitan magazine. And when the photographer and the interviewer arrived at the vicarage for the photo shoot, understandably, vicar says, Hey, you Cosmo, me vicar, why you come to me? And this is what the interviewer replied. He said, the type of people who read Cosmopolitan are the sort of people who tend to have everything, and yet they feel that there's something missing. They have some kind of spiritual hunger, and so many of our readers have had that hunger satisfied by going on an Alpha course. Now, I've led 35 Alpha courses, and what struck me about Alpha is how it appeals to a very wide cross-section of British society. Folks, more than 3 million people in Britain have been on Alpha. That is a very large number for a voluntary course. Now, Alpha is unique in that it's recommended by all the Christian denominations, so there's nothing weird or strange about it. And the talks on Alpha touch on all the main or the big questions of life. Folks, if you were to come to all nine Thursdays of the King's Arms Alpha course, you would be spending in total... 18 hours of your life looking at the claims of the most famous man who's ever lived The person who's had the biggest impact on the history of our world of anyone who's ever lived But this morning, I'm not asking you to come to the whole course But I am asking you whether you would come just for week one on a no-strings-attached one-off basis If you would come back here in 11 days time on the 9th of October Just to see what you think And if you do week one, you think after that, look, it's not for me, thanks very much. Well, that's just one evening of your life. But I'm bound to say that there are hundreds of thousands of people who are so pleased that they did try Alpha. I personally know hundreds of people who would honestly say the decision to try week one of Alpha was the single best decision of their entire life. So if you're thinking of coming, then if you tell us on this card, We'll be able to cater for the right number of people. If you tell us your name, we could even put you on a table with some people that you know. Folks, we would love everyone as who's part of this church to write something right now. We'd like you all to participate for a simple reason. For those who are ticking the box saying they're interested in Alpha, it would help them to not be the only person in their row who's writing something right now. So could you help them, help all of us? Tell us what you thought. Tell us how we could have done better. Make a comment at the bottom of what you thought of the meeting. If you are interested in Alpha, tick the box and put it, um, you can hand it in later on. And then also tonight we'll be taking some of the questions that weren't addressed in this talk, all sorts of questions we didn't get to. And if you write your question at the top of this card, then we'll try and take some of those questions this evening in our meeting later on. Okay, we're all going to write something now as the music plays. and then Phil will come in 60 seconds and wrap things up. God bless you.